This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Alaska Pollock fishery in Alaska's Bering Sea is one of the most abundant sources of sustainable fish in the world. That's partly because the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration helps to actively manage the fishery by keeping a close watch on every detail of the ecosystem. But changes in climate can have major effects on how many pollock survive in a given year. Dr. Elizabeth Sidden is a scientist at NOAA's Alaska Fisheries Science Center, and she's the recipient of a 2019 Presidential Early Career Award for her research, which has led to major improvements in forecasting fish populations. She spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. I think of my job in sort of two parts. One is the research, sort of applied research that I work on, and that tends to be around looking at how environmental changes impact pollock survival. So we look at all sorts of different factors that might influence whether young of the year, so pollock in their first year of life, survive the many gauntlets that they go through in that first year of life. And we do that research to help inform down the road, the fishery, and give them some sort of indication of what we think is coming as those fish enter the commercial fisheries, those fish get caught as older age classes, maybe starting around age four. So that's the research side of what I do. And then the the real sort of management application that I work on is part of NOAA's, what we call the ecosystem status reports. So I lead the Eastern Bering Sea Ecosystem Status Report, and those are reports that we produce every year on an annual cycle. We produce them in tandem with each of our stock assessment documents for each of our individual stocks that are commercially fished from the Bering Sea. And we do that in tandem because that helps meet NOAA's goal of doing what we call ecosystem-based fisheries management. So in the ecosystem status report, we include all pieces of information from um, climatology, what the oceanography is doing, water temperatures, prey, predators, seabirds, mammals, humans, and how all of that as a story gives us a sense of how the ecosystem is doing. And that provides the contextual information for doing ecosystem-based management. So we can have, uh, it can have implications in the quota setting process. If there are red flags uh, for a particular stock, it can impact the quota process. Yeah. Can you actually just spend a, a quick minute here telling people what NOAA's role is in managing the fishery and, and, and setting those quotas for people who aren't familiar with that particular mission? So NOAA's mission is to uh, provide services for the nation, including productive and sustainable fisheries. And in their mission statement, uh, the verbiage is that that is all backed by sound science and an ecosystem-based approach to management. And so what that means in real life is that when NOAA, we provide the science to help resource managers balance competing interests within the ecosystem across different users of the system. Those users might be different stakeholders. They might be different species like seabirds, but they're all maybe utilizing the same resource in terms of uh, a fish stock. So to go back to the Pollock example that you mentioned at at the beginning of the interview here, talk about some of the the recent climate shifts that have been happening that have been influencing, for example, how those young of the year do in recent years. There was a large-scale integrated project uh, several years ago called the Bering Sea Project, 
and it had probably 100 different principal investigators. It was looking at all aspects of the Bering Sea ecosystem from top to bottom, focused. We had three focal field seasons back in 2008 through 10. It also leveraged historical surveys in the Bering Sea that NOAA had been conducting since the early 2000s. And that Bering Sea project, one of the biggest results or several of the biggest results had to do with mechanistic linkages that impacted Pollock survival. So there's a great infographic that came out of that project that describes how Pollock respond to either above average or below average temperature conditions. So in cold years in the Bering Sea, the zooplankton, which are the, the krill, the copepods, really the prey base of lots of things up the food chain in the Bering Sea, under cold temperatures, the, the zooplankton are bigger, they're fatter, so they have more lipid content in them and there's more of them. I think of that as like this trifecta of things that leads to the juvenile pollock in that first, their first summer of life, they end that first summer themselves in better condition. They're bigger, they're fatter. And what that means is that then they go into that first winter, which is a pretty big gauntlet for young of the year fish. We see higher rates of overwinter survival when those fish go into winter in better condition. And all of those mechanistic linkages slip under warmer conditions. So when it's warmer in the Bering Sea, the zooplankton, that prey base, tends to be made up of not only smaller taxa of things like copepods, but they're less lipid rich. The pollock, therefore, end their first summer in lower condition, and we see lower rates of overwinter survival. Fewer fish survive to age one under warm conditions. And that mechanistic understanding has been really the basis of moving forward now uh, up to now 2019, our ability to understand and forecast what we think is going to happen in the Pollock in, in the Pollock fishery under the recent warm conditions. Hmm. So, so I'm just reading here from NOAA's description of, of some of the factors that led to your winning the Presidential Early Career Award. And it says that um, part of it was increasing the ability to forecast population dynamics. Is it is it really primarily that whether Pollock survived that first year, is that the biggest predictor of you know, of future populations in a given ecosystem? There are certainly lots of bottlenecks in the first year. Um, once fish reach age one, the the number of things that have big influences on their survival, the, the cohort or the year class strength, um, tends to uh, even out a little bit. So it is that first year of life from eggs through that first winter. There's just lots of different uh, gauntlets that those fish have to either make it through or not. And what we've learned since the Bering Sea Project, that mechanistic understanding of the quality of the of their food source, we can do a pretty good job of predicting when your classes will not do well. We know what sorts of conditions lead to low survival. What we're working on now is what leads to those banner year classes. There have been, you know, there are above average years of Pollock recruitment. There are um, a couple of year classes out in the population now that were 
really above average banner year classes. And we don't have a good understanding or ability to predict those high points. And I think it's probably a combination. You know, it's it's easy to know when fish won't survive. If it's too warm and they don't have food, that's a pretty easy answer. If it's not too warm and they do have enough food, then then other factors start to come into the picture. You know, what are their predator populations doing? What are their rates of cannibalism? Where are they ending up uh, spatially over the Bering Sea Shelf? And are those productive areas or not? So if they can't even sort of get past those first questions of the, the temperature and the food availability, um, then it's sort of uh, irrelevant what the other factors that may have impacted a population in a warm year. In a cold year, all those other things come into play, and we don't have a good understanding of sort of adding up all those other factors, how they need to play out to get a banner year class. Sure. As far as, you know, the state of the science right now and your ability to do predictions, is it really just forecasting an upcoming year, or, or, or can you start to go multiple years out? We do have a couple of indicators that can predict to age three survival. So looking at age zero or the juvenile conditions, and a lot of these, again, are looking at things, um, what we call bottom up. So looking at the conditions of their food source and relationships with how many fish end up then surviving to age three. So that's a good, those are good predictors to be able to give to the fisheries managers to say, you know, in two years, we think this is what you'll see for this year class of Pollock. Got it. Let me finish up with a, with a totally non-fisheries question. Um, I, I understand you're a public <laughs> servant at least a couple times over because you've, you've also decided to get involved in education there as a member of the Juno yeah. School Board. Talk about the, the you know, your, your thinking behind that decision and why you wanted to get involved in that way. Uh, I decided to run for the school board for several different reasons. Um, I had been involved in, there's a local community partnership that I was part of, a, of founding that is called Southeast Exchange. And that really was sort of an organic grassroots effort to get, to bring together the variety of different STEM professionals, so science, technology, engineering, and math professionals in Juneau. There's a rich community of people who who use science or math, and, and we meant it really in the broadest sense. So even building trade people who are using math when they're calculating angles of building of buildings, uh, bring those people together with teachers from the Juneau School District and form partnerships where local STEM professionals could go into Juno classrooms and really provide place-based and hands-on opportunities for students. So they're not just learning lessons from textbooks. They're seeing how those lessons really are applied in the real world. And so that was, that was part of the impetus for running for school board was to have, you know, sort of a even bigger seat at the table to make sure that we're bringing STEM into the curriculum and connecting it with real world examples for students. And the other reason, of course, uh, which I think probably most people who run for school board was as an advocate for our own son and very quickly learning, you know, you're not just an advocate for your own kid, you're an advocate for all all students in Juneau. And then I also joined, there's a Association of Alaska School Boards, which is a 15-member board 
that oversees um, all of Alaska school boards. And, and for me, having that even broader view as an advocate for all students across the state has been really uh, learning, a learning experience and a really rewarding experience. Dr. Elizabeth Sidden, a scientist at NOAA's Alaska Fisheries Science Center and a recipient of a 2019 Presidential Early Career Award, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. All I want for Christmas is a DWI. Yeah, said no one ever. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober, drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 